Welcome to another episode of Fear Not, the podcast that tells us why we are afraid of all the wrong things and oblivious to what can actually kill us. Trending fears this week? Sardine-packed airplanes are death traps in an emergency. The Joker is going to incite another mass killing. Florida man arrested for declaring what part of his girlfriend he likes to eat. Warning, people with trypophobia do not look at the new iPhone. Barry's Fear of the Week, Liars Figure and Figures Lie. Shame on doomsday scientists. That and so much more coming up on Fear Not. Today is gonna be a good day. Don't care what anybody else say. Oh, I don't need a fortune cookie to tell me the way I'm feeling. Gonna be a good day. A good day. Welcome back to Fear Not. This is episode 21. I'm Alonzo Bowden here with my fear-shaming co-host, Dr. Barry Glasner, the world's foremost expert on fear. Hey, Alonzo. Good to see you. What have you been up to? I am uh, about to go on the road. Starting next week, the 22nd, I will be doing Family Feud Live. So just check out either website, either Family Feud Live or alonzobowden.com. You'll see the dates. You'll see where we're doing the show, and it'll be fun. And we're here to debunk fears. That's what we do every episode. You can be the smartest person at the PTA meetings or the dinner parties or at your barbecues just by listening to us every week. And we both want to thank you for sharing us with your friends. Tell them all to listen. Like us on the platform of your choice. Just take a second for a review because they really do matter. On Twitter, you can hit us up at fearnotofficial or you can email us at fearnotofficial at gmail.com. And while you're there, hit subscribe, all right? Let's get this thing started. Let's do it. Headline number one, the Joker made the media go mad. Alonzo, this one is something that cuts into a much bigger topic that we're going to get into. But the thing that prompted it is that ahead of the opening weekend of the movie The Joker, the press was all over the potential of another mass killing that was supposedly going to be inspired by Joaquin Phoenix's mentally ill title character. This is the way it's been described. The Joker, the title character, is played by Joaquin Phoenix. He's a clown by day and a failed stand-up comic by night. His mental health care runs out, so he's cut off from his meds. And uh, what does a mentally ill, bullied, loner clown do? Get a gun and let the killing begin. Here's a little snippet of it. Arthur, does it help to have someone to talk to? My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose. To bring laughter and joy to the world. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? Have you seen the movie? I have. It is phenomenal. I don't know how to describe it without uh, any spoilers. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. I'm planning to go this week. Okay. Well, I don't want to ruin it for you, and I don't want to ruin it for anybody in the audience. It's very dark, very dark. And as a comic, I will say it is pretty accurate. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I did go to one theater, and they did have the sign-up, like, no masks allowed and no, no costumes. So according to a joint intelligence bulletin, 
from the FBI and the Homeland Security Office from before the movie's premiere. They said that threats had been circulating online since at least last May. Here's an exact quote of what the, the FBI bulletin said. It said, No specific or credible threats to particular locations or venues have been found, but some of the threats contained references to the involuntary celibate community or incels, specifically a subset that refers to itself as clown cells. As far as being involuntarily celibate, particularly the guys who are sitting around you know, worshiping clowns all day. That It's really hard, <laughs> really hard to get a date when you're a clown <laughs> worshiper, you know, because women find clowns a bit creepy. So even before the movie was released, parallels were drawn between the Joker and incels. First, I got to tell you, as the scientist in the room, there is no solid research on incels. And there's a simple reason, because they're openly hostile to researchers and to journalists. But some people have studied what they say on their online forums. Here's what we know. Nearly all are men, the vast majority are under the age of 30, and their forums are full of misogynistic language, hateful comments directed at women, and lots of racist and anti-Semitic talk. Yeah, they're, they're angry guys. Here's some more from that FBI bulletin, and I'm quoting, Some incel attackers have claimed inspiration from the previous mass shootings. Incels have been linked to at least 27 deaths since 2014. And while many incels do not engage in violence, some do commit violent acts as retributions for perceived societal wrongdoing against them. That's according to the FBI bulletin. ABC News quoted a psychiatrist saying, quote, this film may play into that cultural script that incels have kind of latched onto. Yeah, that me against the world, that loner, that misunderstood thing. I mean, it's it's easy for them to romanticize that and think that's who they are. Let me read you what the Hollywood reporter Scott Feinberg wrote before the film came out. He said the film was, quote, deeply disturbing, and I fear could incite real-world problems. Okay, let me stop you right there. I, I have a real problem with that. I have a problem when Hollywood does that, because that's a promo for the movie. What better way to get people to see it than to say, this movie can be really dangerous? That's a great promo. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. This guy's not concerned about people being incited. You know, you could say the same thing about so many other movies, right? There, there was, what, Rambo whatever, 15. So are we going to say now every veteran with PTSD might go on a rampage? Mm -hmm. And you're exactly right about if you extend this to any other movie that has any violence in it, you could say the same thing. Anybody who listened to Johnny Cash is going to kill people, right? I killed a man in Reno just to watch him die. So you got to worry about anyone wearing black, (laughs) which would be all of L.A. (laughs) On a Saturday night. And most of New York. So (laughs) where do we draw the line? The FBI seemed pretty serious about it, though. Here's more of what they said. They said, some incel attackers have claimed inspiration from previous mass shooters. That's kind of their main point in a way. They said the Joker movie could lead to lone offender violence. And then, here's the thing, they referenced the July 2012 Aurora, Colorado mass shooting. Again, a little recap in case anybody forgot what happened there. It was very tragic. A 25-year-old white man with bright orange hair entered a midnight showing of the Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rise, and he gunned down 12 people, injured 58. ABC News quoted a New York police commissioner saying that the shooter had dyed red hair and called himself the Joker. The New York Times reported at the time, 
quote, witnesses told the police that the shooter said something to the effect of, I am the Joker, and hence the myth was born. Aurora came up all the time around the opening of this movie. Warner Brothers announced that the Joker would not be playing in Cinemark Aurora Theater in Aurora, where the previous thing had happened. And then the LAPD, New York PD, and the U.S. Army engaged in order to help protect movie theaters showing the film. And that prompted the now common refrain, movie violence inspires real-world violence. And that tune, of course, was in the air already, right before the movie came out, because, of course, Trump and the NRA have been placing the blame for recent massacres on violent movies and video games. Take a listen to what Trump had to say about violence in movies. You see these movies, they're so violent, and yet a kid is able to see the movie if sex isn't involved, but killing is involved. And maybe they have to put a rating system for that. You have these movies today where you can go and have a child see the movie, and yet it's so violent and so disgusting. Here's the thing, once and for all, what Trump doesn't realize. There's already a system to rate movies for violence. He did get one part of this correct, and that's the fact that the MPAA, who rates the movies, they do focus more on sex than violence. And other people have said this, right? So, you you know, you can't show a nipple, but you can show 100 people getting killed. And maybe we need to work that out, but we certainly don't need his help. Look, there's a lot to debunk here. And of course, I want to say right off, police do have to be vigilant to credible threats. Nobody's suggesting otherwise. But let's look at what actually happened at Aurora versus what was said about what happened at Aurora. The reports of the killer saying he was the Joker and playing a character, that turned out to be 100% false. The Denver Post later concluded, quote, investigators heard no witness talking about the Joker and no police officer claimed the shooter called himself the Joker, end of quote. And if that wasn't enough, the shooter himself confessed to a psychiatrist that he did not dye his hair red to emulate the Joker. He dyed it red, actually orange, because red suggests bravery. The Joker's hair, by the way, isn't red, it's green. So here are the facts. Here's the bottom line on this. The notion that the Joker or any movie or TV show could inspire a real-world shooter is an NRA myth. It has no basis in scientific fact. In a June 2017 memo, the American Psychological Association, the APA, cautioned media outlets against claiming that violent media influences real-world criminal acts. I wish all media, every time something like this happens, would have this quote on their screens of their computers. There's little scientific evidence to support the connection, and it may distract us from addressing those issues that we know contribute to real-world violence. End of the quote. Barry, it's not violent movies. What is it? Instead of blaming TV shows, movies, video games, let's focus instead on the scientifically valid substantive causes of gun violence At the top of that list by a mile, easy access to guns. The Aurora shooter had no trouble purchasing the high-power weapons he used, including an AR-15 assault rifle and more than 6,000 rounds of ammunition. Right. I mean, that's what it is. And and this has come up over and over when these super violent, I'm saying that in quotes, movies come out that are going to incite people to go crazy. They come out worldwide. 
but the mass shootings are only here in the United States. It happens in the U.S. because you can go down to the corner store and buy an AR-15 and 6,000 rounds of ammunition. Exactly. So, Barry, the effects of violent movies, fear or fear not? Fear not. To focus on movies, video games, or other media, it's just a distraction from the real factors in gun deaths, namely guns. But if you can get the Army to protect people from my jokes bombing, help. I could use the ticket sales. Just saying. (laughs) Headline number two, are airplane seats getting dangerously small? The seats are getting smaller and Americans are getting bigger. It's not good. Which bothers you more, Alonzo? That they don't serve peanuts anymore or the size of the seat? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The size of the seats, though, is, is ridiculous. You know, I... People, I think people for two inches more leg room would go ahead and buy their own peanuts, I think. <laughs> Probably, yeah. All right, let's, let's get into this story. It goes back to 2018. A consumer group called the Flyers Rights Education Fund sued the Department of Transportation over the ever-shrinking size of airline seats. The judge in the case, who was with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, called it, quote, the case of the incredible shrinking airline seat. This consumer group petitioned the court to order the FAA to get involved, but the FAA said it would rather not. But, you know, the FAA gets its money from Congress, and members of Congress, kind of like you, Alonzo, they fly a lot on planes. As part of approving a new budget for the FAA, Congress tied it to them doing a study to determine the effects of cramming more people per inch on planes, including studying how much space is safe and how quickly planes can be evacuated. I used to work on airplanes. I know my way around airplanes. I'm comfortable with them. I'm not dying inside of an airplane. I know how to get off of that thing. Uh, So, you know, if if we're on a plane, Barry, and something goes wrong, Follow me. (laughs) I promise to do that. But let me tell the listeners how they do this study. Basically, what's going to happen is over 12 days next month, 720 volunteers are going to go through every traveler's nightmare and emergency evacuation. They'll look at 3,000 data points to determine, among other things, how small airplane seats can safely get, how close rows of seats can be to one another, and what pitch is safe. And for those who don't know, the pitch is the distance from the front of a seat cushion to the back of the seat in front of it. So if you can imagine that. And that distance makes a difference, right? Because that involves your leg room and how big bodies can be. Mm -hmm. And on these evacuations, one of the tricks they do is use small people for the testing. Oh, stand by on that one. (laughs) But here's the kicker. Under federal regulations, airplanes must be able to be evacuated within 90 seconds. They can evacuate a plane pretty fast if if all the doors and the emergency exit windows are kicked out. They could get people out of there pretty fast. Right. I have a hard time imagining 90 seconds. But anyway, here's what the FAA said it was required to do. It's required to, quote, issue regulations to establish minimum dimensions for airplane seats with length and pitch that are necessary for the safety of passengers. But they did not commit to making any changes, only that they plan to finish evacuation testing by the end of the year to determine what, if any, regulatory changes are necessary to implement the requirement. Now, safety advocates braced for bad news. 
Paul Hudson, who's president of Flyers Rights, which is an organization that filed the original lawsuit, said this, a bad outcome would be for them to keep the seats essentially as they are or even allow them to shrink further. A good outcome would be for them to require the seats and passenger space to be sized in order to accommodate the demographic profiles that we have now. Mr. Hudson's comment might have been prompted by Congress itself, because when Deputy FAA Administrator Daniel Elwell explained the testing for members of Congress, Representative Steve Cohen of Tennessee asked, where are you going to get these people? You're not going to go to slim fast, are you? I love the idea of Congress fat shaming. That's mm-hmm. hilarious. Where are you heading? Over to Slim Fast. Keep walking. <laughs> Let us know when you find it. But to his credit, I have to tell you, Elwood had a snappy reply to this. He said, we're going to try to use a good demographic sampling, and maybe we'll invite you. So Cohen said that that would be good, and he cited his bad knee, adding, and you've got people in this country who are larger, but you've also got people with disabilities who fly, and you need to have a representative sample. He has a point. And I think part of what he's talking about is we got to get those people out in 90 seconds too, right? Yeah. So the whole thing's got to work. But let's get to the facts here and talk about the odds of you having to flee a burning plane in the first place, okay? Those odds are remote most anywhere in the world, and the odds are tiny in the United States. And by the way, the odds of dying in a plane crash in any way, shape, or form are minuscule about 1 in 11 million. As for evacuations specifically, most of them are orderly and anticlimactic. Here's an example. During an air transit flight that made a true emergency landing in Newark, New Jersey, after a fire was reported in the cargo hold, passengers used all available exits. There was no incident. Sometimes, though, the evacuations are life-and-death situations. An example of that, an Aeroflot jet made an emergency landing in Moscow in May, bursting into flames. The passengers in the rear of the aircraft could not escape the fire, and 11 people perished. It was a horrible situation, but very rare. A video of the survivors in that Moscow crash shows them fleeing the burning plane with their carry-on luggage. Some observers have speculated that the time spent retrieving luggage may have contributed to the passenger deaths. I mean, they announced that if you ever listen to the announcement, the safety announcement when the plane's taken off, they tell you, leave your carry-on behind. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is where human nature gets in the way. You know, people are like, well, it won't matter if I grab mine because everyone thinks they're going to be the only one to grab theirs. And a bunch of people are probably reaching for the overhead bins and other people are trying to get off the plane. And, and it's a small aisle and you have gridlock. So it's a shame it happens. But I don't know that that's the fault of the design of the aircraft. I think that's more just human nature. I was on an airplane where an engine caught on fire and I was sitting next to this woman and I told her, I said, OK, Don't worry, you're going to see a big puff of white smoke. That's the halon system. It's going to put the fire out and everything's going to be fine. And that's exactly what happened. Now, this is the fight the FAA wants to stay out of. It's not about safety. It's about finance, okay? Mm -hmm. On one side, you have these passengers suing for more legroom. On the other side, you have the airline lobbyists paying these same congressmen who are complaining, because that's what lobbyists do, 
to say, we want more seats on the airplane so we can make more money. And they, they basically told these passengers, like, if you want more leg room, it's going to cost more. If we have to take out a row of seats, the seats that remain are going to be more expensive. So the FAA is saying, we're not going to get into your financial fight. We're going to test if it's safe. If it's safe, you guys fight it out. Then it just becomes a cost issue. Do you want to pay more for more leg room? Or the airlines, like I say, they want to squeeze you in like cattle. Legendary test pilot Chuck Yeager said it best, if you can walk away from a landing, it's a good landing. But the bad news? Don't expect more legroom after the FAA study. Evidently, squeezing our expanding butts into shrinking seats is not an FAA issue. As a Washington Post headline put it, the FAA is, quote, a safety agency, not a creature comfort agency. So I'm going to ask you this one, Barry, but I already know the answer. Legroom on planes, fear or fear not? You do know the answer. Safety-wise, fear not. Comfort-wise, that's a whole other story. Down in Florida, we welcome you to the Sunshine State. It's time for Fear Florida, and this one was submitted to us by at AIN Quotes on Instagram. Their message said simply, Fear Florida plus two facepalm emojis. Here's the headline. Florida man arrested for his, quote, I eat a sticker might sue the sheriff's office. <laughs> his I eat a sticker. That's right. That's what I said. Dylan Shane Webb. And they, these guys always have three names. Just so you know, they always have three names. I know. Old Dylan Shane Webb of 23 years old was stopped on a highway in Lake City, Florida, west of Jacksonville by a county sheriff's deputy who saw a sticker on his rear window that read, I eat a Dash cam footage shows a deputy telling Webb that the reason he was pulled over was the derogatory sticker. Let's hear the clip. What's going on, gentlemen? My name is Deputy English. Hey, man, the reason I'm pulling you over is your uh, derogatory sticker on the back of your truck. What is that? How's it not derogatory? It's words. It's words, okay. What do those words mean? It's ass I eat ass. Okay, so some 10-year-old little kid sitting in the passenger seat of his mama's vehicle looks over and reads that I eat and asks his mom what it means. How's she going to explain that? So, Barry, I love the argument in this clip. Okay, first of all, they start out, I don't think either one of them knows what the word derogatory means <laughs> because we're talking about something that's obscene. Derogatory means insulting, so it's not derogatory. Now, you know, when the, when the deputy talks about some 10-year-old kid sitting in the passenger seat of his mom's vehicle, looks over and says, I eat a mom, what does that mean? Florida is the strip club capital of America. If you're driving around your 10-year-old kid anywhere in Florida, he's seen signs and pictures from strip clubs, and there's a Hooters on every corner. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know that I eat is going to send a 10-year-old Florida kid over the hump. <laughs> but who am I to judge? It is Florida. Yeah, it is Florida. So, you know, the, the sheriff says, well, I got four kids, and if one of my four kids asked about the sticker, he'd be furious. Listen to me. What you have on the back of your window, okay, is a misdemeanor in the state of Florida, okay? I have four kids, a 14-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 4-month-old. If my 6-year-old was to look at me and be like, Dad, what does I eat mean, okay? I'd be furious, all right? So, ultimately, the deputy gives uh, Mr. Webb two choices. Remove one letter from the word or get arrested. So now we've got 
Webb's fighting for his constitutional right to free speech. Now, he didn't take the letters off. The deputy arrested him, charged him with the additional offense of resisting an officer without violence. But you know what my favorite part of this whole thing is? And I don't know if you can hear it on, on the clip that well. But Mr. Webb is just totally cool and calm the whole time, all the way throughout this thing. The, the You know, the police officer isn't so much, but Mr. Webb is. And I think that's that made the... the cop even more angry. The fact that this guy did not get upset, did not fight him or anything like that. But this story is not even over yet. <laughs> now, news of Webb's arrests and his sticker made news all around the world. I'm wondering if any women contacted him. Side note, just saying that I think his Tinder might have got a few swipes. <laughs> Webb lawyers up, threatens to sue for violation of his First Amendment right of free speech. Barry, the story has a happy ending. No pun intended. <laughs> it seems the prosecutors agreed with Webb that the whole thing was ridiculous, and they announced shortly after the arrest that they were dropping the charges. Quote, having evaluated the evidence through the prism of Supreme Court precedent, it is determined that the defendant has a valid defense to be raised under the First Amendment of our United States Constitution. Given such... A jury would not convict under these facts. Webb's lawyer, Andrew Bondera, told BuzzFeed News that they were now considering a number of potential claims against the sheriff's office, noting that the dash cam footage shows the deputy telling his client that the sticker was derogatory instead of obscene. And remember I brought that up? Mm -hmm. The lawyer says not only were they wrong on the law, but they happened to be hypocrites. Fear Florida. It's time for Barry's Fear of the Week. Promise me it's not about Trump. I promise you that that word will not cross my lips. The culprits in my Fear of the Week this time are scientists who make doomsday predictions. Here's what prompted me to make this my Fear of the Week. It was a recent headline in New York Magazine that read, There's a 49% chance the world as we know it will end by 2050. Now, ever since I read that, Alonso, I haven't been able to get the R.E.M. song out of my mind. Jarrett Diamond is a UCLA professor and author who wrote bestsellers like Guns, Germs, and Steel. When his new book came out a couple of months ago, New York Magazine did a Q&A with him. And that headline that I read accurately reflected what he said, quote, the chances are about 49% that the world as we know it will collapse by 2050. To which I say, really, Dr. Diamond? 49%, not 43% or 38% or 54%. And it's going to be in the year 2050, not 2060, not 2040. Talk about crazy precision. Here's his explanation for how he came up with this very precise doomsday prediction. He said this, resources that are essential for complex societies are being managed unsustainably. At the rate we're going, we can carry on with our present unsustainable use for a few more decades, and by around 2050, we won't be able to continue it any longer, end of quote. Specifically, he mentioned fisheries getting depleted and farming practices that make soil unusable and pollution of freshwater supplies. For sure, those might be serious problems, but as somebody posted on a discussion site for scientists, framing it like this isn't going to help anyone. In the small chance that they're right, we will all be in apocalypse anyway, 
So do you really think that something like this is going to scare people into changing how they live and carry on their lives? Very well stated. And as another person on that discussion site put it, 49% implies you have enough knowledge to distinguish between 49% and 50% when actually there isn't any quantitative analysis. Here's where I'm going with this. People need to be able to trust that if a scientist says there's a 49% chance of something, there really is. Well, here's my thing with 2050. I got to look at the millennials. Now, On the, the sad part is 2050, that'll be right around the year they finish paying off their student loans. How bad is that? <laughs> you finally paid off the student loan and the world ends. That's just not fair. <laughs> That's not right. Can we not do that to them? But on a more serious note, yeah, the, I understand what he's doing, though, because you give a specific number like 49% and people listen to you, right? Even if you say there's a 50-50 chance, people are like, ah, I'm not listening. But when you say there's a 49% probability, it just sounds better, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Oh, the whole point is if you give a very precise number, it impresses people. It sounds real. It sounds more frightening and very specific. And give an exact year, you know, makes it even more so. But, you know, scientists shouldn't do this. That's, that's the thing. Even religions now are hiring scientists to make these doomsday predictions. Apparently, prophecies in the Bible aren't even good enough anymore. The Vatican brought in a researcher from UCLA who's a specialist on the writings and the paintings of Leonardo da Vinci. I saw that movie. Tom Hanks, I believe, is uh -huh. a specialist. Uh -huh. Yeah, You got it. Da Vinci's the famous Renaissance artist and mathematician. He's best known for the painting The Mona Lisa. But this researcher was at the Vatican. Her name is Sabrina Galizia. And what she was studying was da Vinci's famous mural, The Last Supper, which is in Milan. She's an expert on da Vinci and The Last Supper. And she published her research on this in the Vatican's official publication. And get ready for what she found, Alonzo, because you're going to need to rearrange your tour schedule. Okay? Get ready. According to Galizia, the world is going to end on November 1, 4006. So if you have a gig booked, you're going to have to move it. I'm actually hoping she's right because I'm supposed to pay commissions on November 15, 4006. <laughs> and I'd love to screw my agent one last time. <laughs> so how does she know this is the exact date, November 1, 4006? Well... There's a half-moon window in the mural that she was studying, right? And she says it contains what she calls a mathematical and astrological puzzle. Galizia says that she deciphered the puzzle and found the date. Here's a quote from her. There is a da Vinci code. It's just not the one made popular by Dan Brown. She's, of course, talking about what you were just talking about, the best-selling novel, which was then later made into a movie starring Tom Hanks. Well, I don't know if the world's going to end November 1st, 4006, because the world was going to end January 1st, uh, 2000, right? And then the world was going to end when Obama became president. <laughs> Wasn't he the Antichrist? <laughs> All right, so if we got to wait till 4006, I think we should just throw her in the ring with the 2050 guy, let them fight it out, or we'll split the difference, and the world's going to end, that would be, what, around 3031. And by the way, I wish the politicians would stop doing this. Even AOC declared earlier this year, quote, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. It's a good scare tactic. It was, it was a dumb thing to say, only because it'll be used against her to discredit 
any green initiative or this or that. But the world's not going to end in 12 years. If if it was, they wouldn't be giving out eight-year car loans. Once again, <laughs> follow the money. Just follow the money. <laughs> now, she eventually walked that back and said she didn't mean for people to take it seriously or rather literally, I guess. But look, forget politicians. They're not exactly known for being accurate or conducting rigorous research. Scientists are known for those things, and they should learn from others' past mistakes before they're tempted to make doomsday predictions. In the 1960s, a biology professor at Stanford, Paul Ehrlich, became one of the world's most famous scientists of the era thanks to his dire warning, namely that within 10 or 20 years, much of the world was going to die from lack of necessary provisions like food and water. The world's population was rising so fast, he said, that overpopulation would soon lead to exhaustion of natural resources and mega famines. Ah, but au contraire, as the French Canadians say, between 1960 and 2016, the world's population increased by 145%, but we haven't run out of a single non-renewable resource, and famine has nearly disappeared outside of war zones. In 1961, Food supply in 54 countries was less than 2,000 calories per person per day. That was true of only two countries in 2013. In 1960, life expectancy throughout the world was 53 years. Now it's more than 70 years. Listen, far too many people live in poverty and suffer hunger, including even in our country. But the doomsday predictions that overpopulation would wipe us out, nah. But when a scientist says it, people tend to listen. Yeah, that's right. And scientists need to be precise and not make doomsday predictions. A Washington Post writer named David Vondrell put it perfectly earlier this year. He said, quote, from immigration to climate to wealth distribution, our policy debates are dominated by doomsday and stalked by scarcity. Yet all around us, if we will just look past fear to facts, we see evidence of abundance. To which I say... We need scientists especially to set their minds to it and to stop with the doomsday blather. I think you need to start mailing them copies of your book. Done. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Alonso, you remember that story we had about the asteroid that almost hit Earth? Yeah, I remember that story. That was the asteroid that it was like a near miss. If if it had hit the earth like it hit Manhattan. It would have killed millions of people, and who knows what might have happened and so on. So BuzzFeed News filed a Freedom of Information Act request, and they got some additional information. Most importantly, as far as we're concerned in looking at this with our crack research team, the fact that NASA missed this kind of matters. Paul Chodas, manager of NASA's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies, posed two questions. Why was 2019 okay, that's the name of the asteroid, not discovered by one of the major NASA surveys? And if the Brazilian observatory that finally spotted it hadn't caught the asteroid, is it possible it could have escaped discovery completely? I love that he is the manager of NASA's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies. <laughs> I swear that sounds like a fake agency in a movie. <laughs> That sounds like something in Men in Black. Well, and who's the director of the Center for Far Earth Object Studies, <laughs> right? So the experts determined that a combination of factors ultimately caused the agency to miss it. NASA said there were three factors. The position of the moon, bad weather, 
and the slow-moving nature of the asteroid. That's their reasons. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of some excuses I got for papers that were turned in late. But anyway, uh, that's what they had to say. But as a reminder to everybody, the chances of an asteroid of this size hitting Earth is, quote, only on the order of once every several thousand years. So we can relax for the next few thousand years. But that's the update. Closing time. Open all the doors and let you out into the world. It's closing time, but first, every week Barry's crack research team dig for a story so ridiculous it sounds too stupid to be true. Or is it? And you get to guess if it's true or made up. So here we go. New iPhone's triple lens camera design disturbs people with fear of holes. I hope not. I'm going to go with false because I'm really hoping people aren't scared of the holes for the lenses in an iPhone. Well, here's the story. It comes from CNN. Apple unveiled its new iPhone models on Tuesday, specifically the iPhone 11 Pro, which I just saw the other night at dinner, by the way. A friend had it. It's pretty impressive. But anyway, while some tech fans applauded the new phone's design, another feature has caught the eye of trypophobia sufferers everywhere. The lens features three camera lenses, and while the design is likely to appeal to photography fans, some media users say that it's triggering their trypophobia. Now, trypophobia is an intense and irrational fear of small holes and clusters of circles and bumps, such as those in a honeycomb, lotus flower, or bubble bath. Well, see, Barry, right here, we got a strange fear. So someone is afraid of honeycombs, lotus flowers, and bubble baths. That is a weird triple to be afraid of. What what world are you living in that those three come together? The only way I could see those come together is that if you had some lotus flower honey scented bubble bath that you poured into the water and the bubbles formed the shape of a lotus flower and smelled like honey, then then possibly someone would run screaming from the bathroom and say, you've hit the triple. Hence, trypophobia. Ah. I figured ooh, it out. Ooh, you worked hard to get to that one. That You worked hard to get to that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, fortunately for us, Research into trypophobia is limited. <laughs> Jeff Cole, who's a visual scientist at the University of Essex in the UK, told CNN that while it might seem a little bit odd for people to feel uncomfortable at the sight of holes clustered together, for people with trypophobia, the images can cause a range of reactions with varying levels of severity. So according to the research from the University of Essex, quote, the phobia arises in part because the inducing stimuli share basic visual characteristics with those of dangerous organisms. End of the quote. Trypophobic images generally display, quote, high color contrast at mid-range spatial frequencies, cycling from bright to dark three or four times per centimeter, seen at arm's level, and have a very unique spectral composition something you don't see in the natural world except in poisonous animals. Barry, if you take out that last line, it sounds like an ad for the camera. High color contrast at mid-range spatial frequencies, <laughs> cycling from bright to dark three or four times per centimeter. I didn't want one of these phones, now I want one. I had no idea the camera could do all that. 
at arm's length. That means it's good for selfies. Well, Apple was contacted by CNN. So far, they didn't respond. Barry, I'm still betting on false. I'm going false on this one. We can't be that bad. Bad news, it's true. The trypophobic people will not buy the iPhone 11. And all your pictures will be of people running away. I'm going to go get a nightcap for real now. I'm going to wait for the iPhone 12. (laughs) Today is going to be a good day. Don't care what anybody else say. Oh, I don't need a budget cookie to tell me. If you like what you heard, hell, even if you hated what you heard, hit the subscribe button and tune in every week. Give us a five-star review to help us rise on the charts. And as always, if you hear news stories that make your hair stand on end or they sound like someone is trying to fill you with fear, send them to us at fearnotofficial.com or tweet us at fearnotofficial. And we'll see if we can uh, find the truth. Let us know what you're scared of. Fear Not is a Stone and Company Entertainment production, hosted by Alonzo Bowden and Dr. Barry Glasner. Executive produced by Scott A. Stone. Produced and edited by Adam Everest. Written by Scott A. Stone, Barry Glasner, and Adam Everest. Alonzo writes stuff too. Don't believe him. Our sound engineer is Tim Moore. Legal Beagles, Loeb and Loeb. Crack accountants are 10 key accounting. Special thanks to Gary Brown, Betsy Amster, and Adam's imaginary girlfriend.